This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord, filled with the Spirit, ready to take in the Word of God. most important thing that we have studied is that as believers we are to walk by means of the Spirit, we are to be filled by means of the Spirit, and we are to abide in Christ. Whenever we sin, whether it is in our opinion a great sin, a minor sin, a white sin, a black sin, whatever kind of sin it is, all sin violates the righteous standard of God. No matter how small or minor it may seem to us, it still violates the standard of God. Remember, all Adam did was eat a piece of fruit. And look at all the damage that did. So it doesn't take much to violate the righteousness of God. So we have to make sure that we are in fellowship with Him in order to maximize our time in the Word of God. And we do that through 1 John 1.9, which states, If we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which means that at that instant of confession, we are cleansed from that sin. It's no longer an issue. It no longer separates us in fellowship from God the Father in time. And it is for us to, uh, and enables us to continue our growth and advance in the spiritual life. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then open in prayer. With our heads bowed, we'll open in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have given us the spirit of truth, that he indwells us, he fills us, he guides and directs us, and it is the Holy Spirit who has set us apart in terms of sanctification, and he is the one who guides us, helps us to understand your word, and to remember it and to recall it for application. Now, Father, as we continue our study in John and to understand these facets of the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us to understand them. And to be challenged by them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John 16, verse 12, and we will continue our study of the Upper Room Discourse. The Upper Room Discourse begins in John 13 and extends through John 17, although technically, I think that at the beginning of John 15, they... Uh, that is, Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room. They're walking towards Gethsemane. And then in uh, John 17, we have the intercessory prayer of our Lord. But all of this, I think, has one theme, and that is to develop the concept of what it means to love one another as Christ loved the church. 
some over 20 times that word love is used in these chapters. Not only does the word love appear a majority of time in this gospel between chapters 13 and chapter 17, the word agape, but also the word phileo and philos, uh, the noun form, uh, appear in, in uh, this, these chapters. So that is the theme and everything else somehow revolves around that theme. And as we have seen, Jesus continues to teach just a tremendous example of pedagogy here. He introduces a theme, and then he brings in another strand, like he's weaving a rope, and he weaves that in. Then he goes back and he picks up another strand, another concept, and begins to weave that in. And then he, he weaves those together, and he'll go back and he pick up the first, the first theme again and begin to weave that in. So he builds the concept. It's, it's a great illustration of the principle in Isaiah of line upon line, precept upon precept. It's just, just one thing building upon another, building upon another, which is the basis for our philosophy of teaching here at Preston City Bible Church. So we have seen in these chapters that Jesus begins in the upper room with the Passover meal, and there he removes or excludes uh, Judas from fellowship because Judas is not a believer. Judas is, in fact, indwelt by Satan, and so Jesus cleanses the uh, upper room from the presence of the unbeliever and of Satan, purges the disciples so that now he has a purified uh, room in which to teach and explain principles related to the spiritual life of the coming church age. This is just an introduction. As we'll see in this passage, he can't give them much more than this because they're not ready to take it in and to understand it. Chapter At the end of chapter 13, he introduces the new commandment that they are to love one another as Christ loved the church. And in chapter 14, he ties this to the coming of the Holy Spirit who in John 14 is referred to as the Spirit of Truth. Back in John 14, 16 and 17, he introduces that theme, that doctrine. doesn't say much more about it than that. comes back a little later on, ties it in with the fact that the Holy Spirit will, will bring things to memory. He will teach you all things and bring things to your memory in verse 26. And he is continuously called in verse 16 and then in John 15:26, he's referred to again as the spirit of truth. And then when we get down to John 16, verse, uh, verse 13, he again is called the spirit of truth. Now, one of the basic laws of, of Bible study is repetition. Not the kind of repetition you have from the pulpit, but that when certain things are repeated in the text, then the Holy Spirit, who is a master of the economy of words, that means the Holy Spirit doesn't prattle on in the Scriptures and ramble on about any odd thing that might satisfy our curiosity, that whenever things are repeated, immediately flashbulbs and red lights and sirens ought to go off in our mind because there's a reason for it. And so if three times in this context the Holy Spirit is referred to, and almost every time the Holy Spirit is mentioned, He's described as the Spirit of Truth. That tells us something. Jesus is going to be talking about revelation. We know how John uses the word truth and how Jesus uses the word truth because that's defined in context. In John 17 and 17, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. 
So at that point we see a connection. If the truth is the Word of God and the Spirit is the Spirit of truth, then the Spirit is the Spirit of the Word of God. And it emphasizes His revelation. And that's the context of this whole chapter or this whole discourse is the Spirit is going to be giving new revelation and He is going to be indwelling the church so that they can then comprehend this new revelation. God has not only given us His Word through His Spirit, but He has given us His Spirit to help us understand His Word. And His Spirit has given us gifted men, men with the gift of pastor-teacher who have the skills and ability and the innate spiritual gift to get into the Word of God and to extrapolate from it the doctrines of the Word of God that in turn are taught to the congregation so they can be spiritually nourished and grow. The important thing is that pastors need to be trained. Just because they have the gift of pastor-teacher doesn't mean that they have some sort of intuitive gift that they can just open the Bible and start teaching it. It's a, it is a communication gift, but it has to be trained. A man needs to go to seminary. I emphasize formal training. It is so crucial that men who think they have the gift of pastor-teacher get the formal training. It's harder when a man is older and he's married, has kids, and then decides, oh, I have the gift of pastor-teacher, but sometimes at that point they have to settle for limited objectives. But there are more and more opportunities, campus extensions, all kinds of opportunities to get some training today. But God has given the church gifted men for a purpose, and that is to teach. If the pastor is not doing his job to teach the Word, nobody's going to get fed. And I am amazed. This was a theme I taught on when I was down at the Capitol Seminary on Friday. I'm amazed at how few pastors understand that today. I'm amazed. I talked to many pastors and how often do you teach? Once a week. They teach for 30 minutes on Sunday morning if they're long-winded. And that's it. And I'm saying, well, well, who's really doing the teaching? Where are people learning basic doctrine? Where are they really getting into the Word? Well, that's down in Sunday school. Well, how much training do those Sunday school teachers have? Well, not a whole lot. Just whatever, whatever they pick up along the way and whatever the little Sunday school quarterly says. So what you're telling me, I say, is the guy who's got maybe two or three years of the original languages, a four-year THM degree or three-year DMIN degree, the guy who is the professionally trained communicator of the Word of God isn't communicating the Word of God. And the lay people who are amateurs, who haven't got a clue, never had any formal training, do this on the side. They're the ones who are responsible for 80% of the teaching of the sheep. Don't we have something backwards here? And... That's exactly what's happened in the church today is that people no longer have an appreciation for content, for feeding the sheep. And churches are distracted by programs. They're distracted by fellowship. They're distracted by all kinds of secondary issues. Not that those aren't important or meaningful or significant, but they are not the issue in the spiritual life. There's nothing wrong with having a choir. There's nothing wrong with having a youth group. There's nothing wrong with having fellowship dinners and all these other things that can become part of church life. But I find what happens is that they eat up. They eat up the doctrinal teaching. So that what happens is you have a good music program. You get a reputation for having a good music program, for having a choir. And then people come to the church. It's nice to have Bible teaching, but I like to sing. So now they're there because they want to be in the choir. They're not there because they're getting fed the Word of God. That's not their priority. Pretty soon you have a church 
where you have a large number of people like that. They're there for, oh, this is a great place to come because my teenagers now have a youth program to be involved in, and so I'm there for my kids. They're not there because they're being fed the Word of God. They're not there because they're demanding to be fed the Word of God. That's what Peter said in 1 Peter 2.2. Like a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the Word. I think that's how it's translated. And it loses the punch. The punch is that that word desire is a command. It is that you are to hunger and thirst and desire and demand to be fed the milk of the Word just like a newborn baby demands to be fed. Now, Some of you have had experience with hungry infants. They are not quiet. They are not just passive little things lying there just waiting for you, hopefully, to come along with that bottle and stick it in their mouth. Feed me now! See, 1 Peter 2.2 is addressed to the congregation and says, you, the sheep, are to desire Hunger, demand to be fed the Word of God. Now, how many congregations are out there saying, Pastor, you're not teaching the Word. There's the door. Hit the highway. I want somebody in here who's going to get into the Word. And so, you know, Christians just don't know anything. They're not fed and they they don't understand things. One thing, they don't understand the dynamics of the spiritual life and the role of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is introducing in these chapters, is that the life of the church in this coming age is going to be uniquely based on the Holy Spirit, not only His indwelling, but His filling, the gifts that He gives the church through pastor-teacher and the ministry of other spiritual gifts, and His ability to help in evangelism. Now, hold your place and stick your thumb or bookmark in John 16. We'll come back here. But I want to review so it'll be in your minds. And if you weren't here last week, it won't be, you won't think I'm making things up. And I want to briefly set the stage again from Romans 1 and Romans 2 for evangelism. Because this is part of the background here. John, uh, Jesus introduces in John 15, about the middle, from the middle of the chapter on, or 16 on, Jesus introduces the fact that you guys are going to be going out into a world that is 100% antagonistic to you. It's going to hate you. It's going to hate what you stand for. It hated me. It's going to hate you. But there's going to be a helper. Now, in context, that term helper, assistant, paraclete, the one who comes alongside, is obviously helping in the conflict, helping them present the truth in the hostile environment. And we know that we have an edge. Romans 1, 18 through 20 tells us what that edge is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That tells us that these men who are negative to God consciousness suppress the truth in, in unrighteousness. That means to suppress something, it has to be present. So what Paul tells us is right here is that the unbeliever knows the truth because, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. So that tells us in that passage that every unbeliever knows beyond a shadow of a doubt. They won't admit it. You can put them on the rack and tear them limb from limb. You can put hot coals on their feet. You can devise any torture you can. They will not admit it. But God says in the core of their being, 
They know God exists, but they are suppressing that truth. And that gives you an edge. When you're witnessing to them, you know that they know God exists. That's edge number one. Now, in Romans chapter 2, we pointed out the last time that that in Romans chapter 2, God demonstrates that the Jews as well well, are condemned because... um, Everyone has a conscience, and in that conscience, they, they, it bears witness that there is a God. And this is in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the Mosaic law, do instinctively the things of the law, that is, they have an inner sense of right and wrong, it might be skewed in places, but they do have a sense that some things are right and some things are wrong. The Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These, not having the law, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So that means that every unbeliever, Jew, Gentile, whoever has an inner knowledge of God and an inner knowledge of right and wrong, and that is stamped upon the core of their soul so that they are without excuse. Now, That's the backdrop. We're talking about witnessing in the context of hostility in John chapter 16, and we're down to verse 8. Verse 8, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and He says, And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, this is an extremely important passage to understand, and it is one that is often misunderstood. So we have to look at the key words here. He, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This tells us that the Holy Spirit has one particular priority. There are other aspects to the Holy Spirit's ministry, but this is one of them. This is his priority in evangelism. Now, if you're, this is what, when you are witnessing to an unbeliever, This tells you inside that unbeliever, the Holy Spirit is doing something. He's convicting them in three arenas. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. You have to understand what what the text means by that and what he's doing there because what happens in most evangelism is the evangelist is off dealing with X, Y, and Z and the Holy Spirit is just hoping against hope. I'm speaking anthropopathically, that this guy would just say something related to these three categories so he can make it clear to this unbeliever. See, this is the Holy Spirit's priority in evangelism. These are the points he's going to bring into focus on that unbeliever's soul. But if you don't put the content there for the Holy Spirit to focus on, then the Holy Spirit has nothing to focus on. And in most evangelism, people are talking about all kinds of issues that are non-issues, And right here you learn what the issues are in communicating the gospel to an unbeliever. When He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, speaking about the first advent of the Holy Spirit, which is on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D., that this is going to be His mission toward what? He will convict. This is the main verb. And the main verb here is elenko. E-L-E-N-C-H-O. It is a future active indicative, the future tense, meaning that it is not fulfilled at the time of Christ 
While Christ was on the earth, he had to ascend to heaven before the comforter could come, before the helper could come. It is active in that the subject performs the action of the verb. The subject is the Holy Spirit. He will perform the action of the verb. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts. It is not the evangelist, the witnesser, who convicts. Get that point down. It's not your job. It's not my job to convict them. It's the Holy Spirit's job. We present the information and He uses it to convict them. Now, what does it mean to convict? This word, elenko, is a word that has quite a history in the ancient world in the judicial system. And in judicial context, it meant to prove something, to convict someone of a crime, which means you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that they performed a certain action. doesn't mean that you made them feel bad. doesn't mean that you made them feel sorry for their sins. It doesn't mean that you got them all emotional and upset about how they failed God and how miserable they are and their whole families. It doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It is an objective terminology, an objective term that means to trot out the the evidence and make it clear that somebody is guilty of something. It means to convict in a legal sense, to convince beyond a shadow of a doubt. So that's the Holy Spirit's role. He is going to be convincing Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, what is the object of the verb? This is indicated in the Greek by the accusative case. The object of the verb is the world. That's been Jesus' subject since verse 18 of the previous chapter, where he said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before he hated you. So what's going to give us the edge in dealing with the world? The edge, it comes right here. When he comes, the Holy Spirit is going to convince beyond the world, beyond a shadow of a doubt, to put it into better English. He's going to be convincing the world, the cosmic system. We've seen that the believer is not in the cosmic system positionally. doesn't say that the Holy Spirit is going to convict believers of sin. This is one of the great misnomers. You're going to hear every single believer... Well, I did this, and then all of a sudden I realized it was wrong, or I felt bad, or I had remorse, and the Holy Spirit convicted me. You can do a word study of, the, of Elenco in the Greek text, and never once, not one time, anywhere in the Bible, is the believer the object of the verb Elenco, where the Holy Spirit is the subject of the verb. It's not there. The Holy Spirit doesn't convict you of sin. Period. The text says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. Let's be honest with the Scriptures. Let's not go beyond the Scriptures and try to make this say something it's not saying. This is His ministry to the unbeliever. To every unbeliever. That's why this is foundational to understand in terms of common grace. Common grace is that work that God performs on every unbeliever, regardless of their volitional position. If God sends the rain upon the believer and the unbeliever, upon the just and the unjust, God causes the air to breathe. He gives people life, whether they're believer or unbeliever, regardless of their spiritual status. That is common grace. And part of common grace is that the Holy Spirit convicts, makes it clear, just as God makes it clear to the unbeliever at God consciousness that He exists and makes it evident within them, so too the Holy Spirit 
makes it clear to every single unbeliever uh, that they have uh, of these three issues. He convicts them of sin, unrighteousness, and judgment. They know it. That's our edge. Now, that doesn't mean he, he convinces them in the sense that they acknowledge it or accept it as true. But in their core being, they know it's true. And just as they suppress the knowledge of God in unrighteousness, they will, at their negative, suppress the truth of the gospel. And they say, that doesn't make sense. That's silly. That's stupid. What about this? And what about that? And they're going to suppress it. But in their core being, every unbeliever, when they hear the gospel, they are going to be convicted of these three areas. They're going to know it with certainty in their soul. It's not our job to convince them. The Holy Spirit does that for us. It just takes all the pressure off. It's just my job to communicate the truth, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to make it clear. That doesn't mean, a little caveat here, that doesn't mean you don't answer questions. That doesn't mean you just run up to somebody and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, and then run off. Now, we'll, we'll see examples in Scripture. There's dialogue. There's answering questions. There's dealing with people. But you don't have to answer all the questions. You don't have to say, gosh, if I just had a degree in philosophy and in the Bible and had all this knowledge and, and was articulate, then I would witness. doesn't say that. Just do what you can do with what you, what you know. Am I losing sound? You sure? There's a battery. Yep. the problem. You have the lights on. Okay. Where were we? Looking at what the Holy Spirit is doing, he's convicting I hit the snooze button for five minutes. In between there, in those five minutes, the power went out. I woke up at seven o'clock. What? <laughs> had to go. Unfortunately, I had my laptop. had the notes on the laptop. I had to work on that in the dark. So where's my Bible? I couldn't even read my Bible. It was so dark in my study with all the clouds and everything. So it's just been one of those days. Apparently I'm teaching something that uh, has some, in, some impact on the angelic conflict and it's not supposed to get out. Okay, when He, the Holy Spirit, comes, He will convict, He will convince beyond a shadow of a doubt the world concerning three specific things. That's His responsibility in evangelism. Now I want you to pay attention to a wonderful quote I found here and from Lewis Berry Chafer. This unbelief, the Lord declared, is the basis of final condemnation. I'm stepping into the middle of it. Apparently not all the quote got over onto the overhead. Let me start at the beginning. In view, he states on page 218 of volume 3, in view of a finished work by Christ, wherein sin is born and all blessings are secured, the immeasurable failure for the individual for whom Christ has died is that he does not believe on Him. It is noticeable, though contrary to general opinion, that the Spirit does not enlighten the mind with respect to all the sins the individual has committed. It is not a matter of creating shame or remorse concerning sin, nor is it so much as a reminder of sin that has been committed, though there is nothing, on the other hand, to preclude sorrow or consciousness of sin. It is rather that, since sin has been borne by Christ, there remains the one great and only responsibility of one's attitude towards the Savior who bore sin. 
The point he is making is clear. The issue is faith in Christ. That's the sense. It doesn't say in the text, he will convict the world of sins. The Holy Spirit is not coming along, despite whatever the evangelist may do, outlining all the terrible things that the unbeliever has done. The Holy Spirit is not convicting them of all their personal sins. He's convicting them of sin in the singular. And what sin is that? Schaefer goes on to say, now for those of you who don't know, Lewis Berry Schaefer was a great theologian, evangelist. He was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary and was a tremendous Bible teacher in the early half of this century, the 20th century. And Schaefer started off as a musical evangelist. He got his degree in music from Oberlin College and he would travel around and he would conduct evangelistic crusades as a musician. One of the interesting things that Schaefer noted, he had a lot of problems with how uh, evangelism and revivals were conducted because usually they had bought, people had bought into the Finneyite concept of the aisle walking and raising the hand and the anxious bench and all these other techniques to try to motivate people by guilt to come forward and make some commitment to Christ. So he find, one time he went to, he had a five-night uh, revival at a church and he decided at this particular revival that he was not going to have an invitation at the end of the message. He just made the gospel clear, taught the Bible every night, and then he would just close in prayer and sit down. Well, the second night, the pastor said, well, Dr. Schaefer, aren't you forgetting something? You're just not, not giving an invitation. And Schaefer said, no, I'm not going to give an invitation. Uh, I'm just going to make the gospel clear, and on the last night, I will, I'll take care of it. So just, just relax, and I'll take care of everything. So the week went by, and he came to the last night of this particular revival, and he's been teaching the Bible, making the gospel clear, amongst many other doctrines. And the last night, at the end of the message, Chafer said, Now, during this week, I'm sure that a number of you have come to understand the gospel. And perhaps there are a few of you who have recognized your need for salvation, and during the course of the week, you have put your faith alone in Christ alone for your salvation. Now, if you have done this, perhaps you have some questions, and I would be glad to meet with you uh, after the service tonight in the back room and answer any questions that you have. And that was it. And he closed in prayer, and that ended the, the week of meetings. And he went back in the back room, and there were almost 200 people back there. He didn't expect that there would be that kind of a response. But, but see, it's the teaching of the Word. It's not all these other, other gimmicks. And Schaefer really reacted correctly to a lot of the uh, misapplication and distortions that occur in evangelism and in revival meetings. So that's why, and he spent a lot of time on this particular passage. He has about five pages in his systematic theology discussing all the aspects of John 16, 8 through 12. Now, Chafer goes on to say, this unbelief the Lord declared is the basis of final condemnation. Notice, it is the unbelief in Christ. It's John 3, 18. When he said, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Notice, it's not because he committed any sins or committed personal sins at all, but it is because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. He goes on to say, To make the unsaved realize this is a task too great for the preacher. It must be accomplished by the Holy Spirit 
And He, that is the Holy Spirit, will so reveal this specific truth to the unsaved within the elective divine purpose as the gospel is preached to them. The fact indicated in this text that the one ground of condemnation is the failure to believe on Christ as Savior confirms the truth restated more than 100 times in the New Testament that the one and only condition of salvation is faith in Christ as Savior. So Chafer's point, accurately made, is that the sin mentioned in this passage is not personal sins. The issue at salvation, the issue when you're witnessing, is not to deal with the individual's personal sins. Our personal sins were all dealt with on the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single personal sin in human history on the cross. Therefore, personal sins are not the issue. It's not an issue whether you're a murderer, whether you're a thief, whether you're an adulterer. It doesn't matter how rotten you are, whether you beat your kids, beat your wife, or your wife beats you. It just is irrelevant. The issue is, as far as salvation is concerned, the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Now, let's see how the apostles applied this when they presented the gospel. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 23, or you can read it on the overhead. Acts chapter 2 is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. And in that, this is how he presents the gospel. This man, that is Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. See, the issue that he focuses on is Christ's death on the cross, not the personal sins. See, the sin that's mentioned here is the sin of rejection of Christ. They rejected him and they crucified him. The issue is not some catalog of personal sins that they probably had committed. doesn't do that. Now, turn over to the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. Peter again is preaching. This is several days later after the healing of the lame man outside the temple. And Peter is preaching to the crowd and he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. See, he's focusing on the sin of unbelief and rejection of Christ. Acts 3.14, but you disown the holy and righteous one and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. So the issue, the one thing they're emphasizing in their gospel presentation is not personal sins. It's not what have you done, how have you failed, what kind of sins, did you smoke, did you drink, did you play cards, did you go to movies? The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ and what is your attitude? about Jesus Christ. Now, that was to a Jewish audience. In Acts chapter 10, he shifts to a Gentile audience at Cornelius' household in Acts 10.38. And how does he deal with Gentiles? Does he catalog all of their personal sins, make an issue out of all the things that they've done wrong? Absolutely not. He says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. 
And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. That's the rejection of Christ. Right there, that's the focal point. Not the sins of the Gentiles, not their personal sins, but the death of Christ. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible. Not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, as the apostles, Peter was the second, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So the essence of sin here is not the personal sins that they've committed, not to trot out all their wrongdoings, but to focus on Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of our witnessing. Paul does the same thing in Acts 17. There, there's another Gentile audience in view. And Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all everywhere should repent. Now, repent does not mean to feel sorry for anything. You may see that in an English dictionary, but the Greek word is metanoia, which means to change your mind. It is an intellectual concept, a cognitive issue, not an emotive issue. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring all men everywhere they should change their mind about Jesus Christ because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. That's talking about the the, uh, great white throne judgment in the future. Judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the issue is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That's what's going to happen at the great white throne. See, the issue at the great white throne is, is your righteousness good enough to get into heaven? It's not what sins have you committed. Because all of our sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. The issue is, is your righteousness good enough to get into heaven? And as we'll see in the next section, Jesus Christ's righteousness, it is his imputed righteousness that is the issue. That Jesus Christ, at the moment of our salvation, God the Father imputed to us the Uh, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can only get into heaven if you possess that perfect righteousness because God is perfect. God's righteousness is perfect. He can only have fellowship with perfect righteousness. So God had to give us the kind of righteousness we needed in order to have fellowship with Him. And the point of all this is simply to emphasize that the issue in witnessing is not to detail the sins of the unbeliever, not to make them the issue. The only issue is Faith alone in Christ alone. Now let's review a couple of points. Everyone, number one, everyone, believer, unbeliever, atheist, Hindu, Buddhist, every single human being has enough information and they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists. Despite all of her previous uh, objections, the late Madeline Murray O'Hare believed in her soul. She knew God exists, but she rejected it. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Point number two. They all know they are sinners, according to Romans 2. Every single human being has this innate knowledge that they are sinners because they know they have standards and they have violated those standards. Three. Third thing we need to realize is the highest revelation in all of human history is Jesus Christ and the New Testament and no more revelation is given in history. So in evangelism, you're not looking for some new revelation, some new insight, despite all the claims of Joseph Smith, uh, 
Joseph Smith, Mary Baker, Glover Patterson, Eddie, and uh, all of the others who claim that God has spoken to them and revealed something to them. There is no more revelation in human history. It is all given by the Holy Spirit, and the canon was closed in approximately 90 A.D. Point number four, then. We need to emphasize that sin is a violation of God's character and integrity, and it's not a violation of social mores. Society redefines sin every 20 or 30 years. Right now, the biggest sins are some kind of abuse, uh, some kind of sexual harassment. uh, Smoking is becoming a big uh, social no-no. All of these things are just defined by society. Fifty years ago, it was another set. Fifty years before that, it was another set. We have to define sin on the basis of God's Word, and that is it's a violation of God's character, and so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then we emphasize that Christ paid the penalty for all sin, so it's not an issue. This leads to the fifth point, that since sin is against the character of God and not man, the ultimate sin is against Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Revealer of God, the Logos of God, and the ultimate sin against Christ is to reject Him, the sin of unbelief. That is the ultimate sin against God. So when someone rejects Christ as Savior, there is no salvation. That's why John 3.18 says there is uh, that if you have not believed, you are condemned. If you have believed in Christ, you are not condemned. The issue is faith alone in Christ alone. Now let's define specifically what verse 8 means. The text makes it clear what sin is. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Now this is what it, how the Holy Spirit reveals this to us. It's not concerning sin because they've committed a whole host of sins. It's not concerning sin because they committed adultery, murder, they were homosexual, they smoked, they drank, they went to movies and danced. It's none of that. It's concerning sin. What sin? Because they do not believe in me. Now the Greek is clear. It's hati hu pistusen ace eme. And the first word there, the hati, is a causal word. He is giving a reason. He is saying this is why they are convicted of sin. Because of one particular thing. The second word, u, is a negative, not. And pistusen is a, a present, active, indicative, third person singular. Present tense means continual action. Active voice means their volition is actively not believing, actively rejecting. And the indicative mood is the mood of reality. They are, re- they are convicted because they do not believe. And then the object, ace a may, the last phrase is a preposition ace, which indicates the direction of belief. And the object of belief is in the accusative case of ego, which in the accusative case it's a may. And that indicates that the object of faith is uh, me. Jesus is speaking. He's the object of faith. And the reason I state that is that this is the phrase that John uses all through the gospel. Pistuo ace. Pistuo ace. Believe that. There is something you believe. And ace always expresses the object of faith. It is the object of faith that is, that is important, not faith itself. We're not saved because we believe. Anybody can believe. We're saved because we believe in Christ. It is Christ that has all the merit. It is not our belief. Belief is non-meritorious. Jesus Christ is the one who did all the work, and therefore the issue is what do you believe, not do you believe. 
So that the, the verb is limited by the accusative case and what the Holy Spirit is doing in witnessing is convicting that unbeliever that they have not believed in Jesus Christ and that's the basis for their condemnation. So what should you be explaining when you're witnessing? If the Holy Spirit is going to be making clear to them that they have rejected Christ, that should be a key point in witnessing. That salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. The Holy Spirit will take that focus. They're thinking on it right away, and that's what matters. It's up to their volition after that. John 16.10 explains the second aspect of this. And concerning righteousness. Now, the typical first blush reaction to this is righteousness. Well, that must be personal righteousness. See, there's only two categories of righteousness. There's, there's positional righteousness or imputed righteousness, and there is personal or experiential righteousness. That means your good works, your good deeds. Well, the Holy Spirit, is, is He convicting them concerning their lack of imputed righteousness, or is He convicting them because they're just not good enough? Well, if you interpret the righteousness here as experiential righteousness, then you've got to work salvation. You're basically saying that the Holy Spirit is convicting them that they don't have enough good works. And we know from Scripture that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. So we have to define the righteousness here as imputed righteousness. Now, the problem is, how many of you in witnessing, how many of us, we've all made this mistake, have taken the time to explain the doctrine of imputation to an unbeliever? And yet, that's what the Holy Spirit is focusing them on, right here, concerning imputed righteousness. That's the component in the Gospel. Concerning righteousness, imputed righteousness, this is what Schaefer has to say about this. Gospel preaching has made much of the remission of sin through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and not more than should be. In other words, that's an issue. Forgiveness is important. Understanding remission of sin, it's paid for, that's fine. He said, but a deplorable neglect has been accorded the equally requisite truth that a perfect standing is imputed. one who believes. The truth of the gospel is outlined in John 167 7-11. is presented in full-orbed perfection, wherein it exceeds man's restricted discernment of the gospel, will but serve to demonstrate the inattention of men to this paramount theme. In other words, wake up and focus on imputation, as over against this careless notion that any kind of a statement will serve as a gospel message. See, don't be vague. Focus on the issues. Attention should again be drawn to the unrevoked anathema of Galatians 1, 8 through 9. There is a false gospel and there is a true gospel. And if you have a fuzzy or false gospel, then you are cursed. He goes on to say, So little indeed is the fact and value of imputed righteousness comprehended due to a large extent to the neglect of it, that it is not easy to develop this truth to the same level of realization to which the more accentuated verity of forgiveness of sin has attained. What he is saying there is that you can't really focus their attention that much on imputed righteousness because nobody understands it, because nobody teaches it, but everybody understands forgiveness of sin because that hits us where we're living. But we need to be focusing and teaching imputation. And nobody teaches that anymore. 
except maybe in a Sunday school class. Schaefer goes on to say, There can be no question that the two ideas, imputed righteousness and remission of sin, are, as a challenge to the human understanding, incomparable. Largely due, it would seem, to the obvious fact that remission of sin is a more or less common experience in human relationships, while the imputation of righteousness has no parallel in human experience outside that set forth in the gospel. This is from Chafer, Volume 3, page 219. And then Chafer, I was, as I read this, I was amazed at some of the wonderful insights Dr. Chafer had. There about At the end of that particular paragraph, he inserts this statement, which I found to be very profound and insightful. He says, Here is introduced a supernatural feature of the gospel. Divine forgiveness of sin is also a supernatural accomplishment when based on the death of Christ. But far too often, forgiveness of sin is computed to be no more than a divine benevolence or generosity. Now what he is saying is that the forgiveness that we have on the cross, at the cross, is profound and supernatural and it's different categorically from all other kinds of forgiveness. See, we water it down. We say, well, forgive him of that, forgive him of this, as if it just, just wash it clean. Act as if it didn't happen. God never acts as if it didn't happen. It cost God everything to provide our salvation. He sent His Son to the cross. It is a supernaturally purchased forgiveness of sin that took place at the cost of Christ going to the cross where He who knew no sin was made sin for us and all of our sins were imputed to Him. If you don't understand that as a foundation of forgiveness, then you can never understand what real forgiveness is in human relationships. See, most of us talk about forgiveness. You think about things that have happened in some of the court cases recently and some of the national scandals that have taken place. Well, just forgive them. And it's not really a forgiveness as the Bible defines forgiveness. It's just, well, let's act like it didn't happen. And that's not biblical forgiveness at all. Biblical forgiveness is based on the fact that an admission of guilt was made and a payment for guilt was paid. And you don't see that anywhere in a modern understanding because few people understand the issue of imputed righteousness and its relationship to Christ and to salvation. The character of God has two key components, His righteousness and His justice. His righteousness is symbolized by plus R in the diagram. His J is the justice. The righteousness is God's standard. These are His absolutes. The justice is the application of those standards to His creatures. Man is born minus R. All Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. No matter how good we are, no matter how wonderful we are, no matter how sincere we are, as far as God is concerned, we are minus R and we never come up to the standard of God's absolute perfection. At the cross, we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. All of our sins were poured out on Him so that at salvation, His perfect righteousness is imputed to us and we receive His perfect righteousness. Therefore, the righteousness and justice of God can look down and see our perfect righteousness and we are blessed by God because of the righteousness of Christ, the imputed righteousness, and not because of anything that we do. It is 
Christ's righteousness that is the basis for every blessing. That's why we're saved is because we have Christ's righteousness. That's how we are blessed as we mature is because we have Christ's righteousness. It's never based on who we are, what we do at any point in time. It's always based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Now, the third issue that the Holy Spirit makes clear in a witnessing situation is John 16:11, and concerning judgment. Now, the first thing that everybody thinks of when they hear the word judgment is the great white throne judgment. Are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell? That's not what this passage is talking about. The focus here on judgment is not great white throne. It's not uh, R.G. Lee's famous sermon, Payday Sunday. It is, that's not the issue at salvation. The issue at salvation is a different judgment. It is the judgment that occurred on the cross, not the judgment that occurs at the end of human history. Concerning judgment, because what? The ruler, that is Satan, who is the ruler of this world, that's one of his titles, the ruler of this world has been judged. This is the perfect active indicative, which means the completion of an event in past time with results that go on forever. It is from the uh, verb krino, which means to judge or to condemn. And Satan has been judged and condemned by Jesus Christ's death on the cross. So the issue, when you focus on judgment in the gospel, if you're focusing on the judgment of the great white throne judgment, the Holy Spirit is saying, come on, come on, let's get to the right judgment. It's the judgment on the cross, not the judgment at the end of human history. So give me something to work with, folks. Give me something to to, uh, explain to this guy and make clear to him, let me get, get the right doctrine in here so I can focus our attention on it. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, that's expiation, when Christ canceled out all the debt of our sins, canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he, Jesus Christ, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So that is Satan and all of the fallen angels have been disarmed. And that doesn't mean they're not powerful. It means that the, the actual defeat is at the cross, and, they will, and that's the basis for their judgment. And so that what we see is up to the time of the cross, Satan's task was to prevent it. And Satan's job since the cross is to blind our minds to it. And he is out there trying to blind the minds of the world to the truth of the gospel, but he has to deal with the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to make the gospel clear to everyone according to these verses in John 16. So the issue is to make God's character the focal point, focus on the issue of the gospel, that the issue is faith alone in Christ alone, not personal sins because they were paid for at the cross. The issue is righteousness, imputed righteousness. It's not our personal practical righteousness ever. It is Christ's righteousness. And the issue has been completed on the cross because that is where judgment took place. So this leads us then to the next verse, the conclusion of this uh, discourse. And Jesus says in John 16, verse 12, I have many more things to say to you but you cannot bear them now. In other words, you don't have the capacity to understand and comprehend everything yet because you don't have the Holy Spirit. Once again, I see an important thing. I never hear this emphasized. 
and that is that there are certain doctrinal subjects that the believer, even the regenerate believer with the human spirit, can't understand. The apostles could not understand these things. Jesus says, I can't give it to you now because you can't bear it. It is You can't understand it. You can't apply it. Uh, I'll have to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Then you will understand it. Then you will apply it. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And then the contrast is verse, verse 13, which is, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Now, before we move on, I want to back up and look at one particular word in verse 12 to elucidate that meaning. When Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear it. He, John uses an interesting word. One of the things we've learned in this study is that John has a profound style. John writes this very close to the end of his life. He's 90-something. He was probably in his 20s, or late, or probably about 30 when this took place, uh, when, when he was with the Lord. So he's had 50 or 60 years to meditate on all the things that took place. And he realizes that, that everything Jesus taught in Jesus' life is multidimensional. That doesn't mean that you've got a higher truth and a lower truth. But that there are, there are things that happen that had many dimensions to them. And John uses words this way that, that are multidimensional. For example, when Jesus says, you must be born again, he uses the word anothen, which means from above, and it can mean a second time. You have tremendous debates among exegetes as to which meaning it is. John used Anathen because he knew both were true. It is a supernatural birth. God causes the regeneration. And it is a second birth. They're both true. And over and again, John focuses our attention through these subtle, stylistic devices. And here he uses the word bastadzo. It's the present active infinitive bastadzane from the verb bastadzo. And it has various meanings. First of all, it means something, it refers to something heavy that is being moved from one place to another, uh, something that has the implication of being heavy. Secondly, it means to carry something that is burdensome, the idea of a weighty responsibility. Third, it means to bear something in mind, to consider it, to understand and comprehend it. And then fourth, it means to continue to bear up under unusually trying circumstances and difficulties. It has the idea in some passages to endure or to bear up under something. Now, John uses this word bastadzo because all of these are true. First of all, the apostles are to carry the gospel. It is a responsibility. It's a, something they are to move from one place to another. They are to carry the gospel throughout the whole world. Secondly, the responsibility is a weighty responsibility. It's a serious responsibility, but they are given a helper to aid them in the task. Third, they are not able to comprehend it all because they don't have the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says you can't bear it now, see, they can't carry it out throughout the world yet because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't. They can't move it around the world because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't carry the responsibility yet because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't understand it fully yet because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And they won't be able to endure the hostility and the suffering and the persecution and the antagonism because they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. So John packs all these meanings and uses one word that has 
four different connotations, and he wants, and he's saying that all of them are true. I find that he is a is simply written sometimes, and it's deceptive because he is an extremely profound thinker. We come to verse 13. He, the Spirit of truth, once again emphasizing the Holy Spirit's role in Revelation. When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative. Notice there is subordination in the Trinity and there's a role for the Spirit. And he, just as Jesus said, I can't tell you what the Father hasn't given me. The Holy Spirit will not reveal what the Father has not authorized. He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, it begins with the phrase, Hatan Day, which in the contrast is between the now, when the Holy Spirit hasn't come at the upper room, and the then, when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. Then he says, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes. And there we have the phrase ekinos again, plus the aorist active subjunctive of erkamai, uh, which means which indicates the potential of when he comes, and the ekinos again indicates his personality. Ekinos is a third masculine singular pronoun which relates to a neuter noun pneuma. And I made this point before, and this is crucial, that in Greek grammar a pronoun has to agree in gender with the noun it refers to. So proper language would say if you have a neuter noun pneuma and you have a pronoun, it's got to be in the neuter form. If there is a shift and that pronoun is in the masculine form, then that emphasizes the fact that the Holy Spirit's not an it, but a he, and therefore a person. He has all of the aspects of personality, not just some force from God. So again, we see the emphasis on the personality of God the Holy Spirit. Then we're told he will guide you into all the truth. And this is the uh, third singular uh, future active indicative of hadegeo. Hadegeo means to lead or to guide. And usually it means to guide someone in acquiring information. Now another word that is used is ago. And ago is not in this passage. Ago also means to lead or to guide, but it means to lead or to guide, uh, to lead or to guide somebody in, 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 in developing something new. So the emphasis here is to, to understand what is there and not to innovate. So they are going to be instructed basically in every category of doctrine. That's the best translation. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will instruct you in every category of doctrine. When it says he will guide you into all the truth, that doesn't mean we're going to be omniscient. doesn't mean that just suddenly you can have a mystical encounter with the Holy Spirit and you're going to automatically be able to correctly interpret Scripture. has the idea there's a body of knowledge there and he's going to illuminate you to understand that. And it is progressive. It takes place over time. Whatever he, it says, he will not speak on his own initiative. He will guide you into all the truth, every category of doctrine. For he will not speak on his own initiative. For whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. In other words, he shall take the things that I've been teaching and make it clear to you. 
And here he's going to change his, his uh, verbs. He changes from hadageo to an angelo, which is a future active indicative form here. He will do this. It's not right now, but when he comes, he'll do this. And it means to provide information with the implication of something that has considerable detail. So he's, when, when Jesus shifts verbs in verse 14, he will disclose it to you. It means he's going to give you detailed information about what I have taught when he comes. He shall glorify me. Now, notice, the role of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. It's not to glorify himself. Whenever the Holy Spirit is the focus of something, when people are focusing on the Holy Spirit, you know there's a problem. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't bring attention to himself. The Holy Spirit brings attention to Jesus Christ. He is the focal point, not the, not the Holy Spirit. This is a problem, I think, with the Pentecostal charismatic movements. They're essentially glorifying the Holy Spirit. They're not glorifying Christ in the process. Despite protestations and some groups who say otherwise, this is a major problem historically with the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Then in verse 15, All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. The focal point is Jesus Christ. Notice how Christ and Christology is the essence of much application in the New Testament. What you always hear as a pastor is pressure to be, I want you to be relevant, pastor. I want you to be applicational. And what could be more applicational than personal relationships, personal problems in personal relationships, especially, especially in marriage? And listen to what the Scripture says. Scripture says, Romans 15, 7, Wherefore? Accept one another. What's your basis for accepting one another? Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. If you don't understand basic Christology, profound Christology, why Christ accepts us, you cannot understand how you can accept other believers. You won't understand believer-to-believer fellowship if you don't understand Christology. If you jump to it, it's nothing more than morality. It has nothing to do with doctrine. Romans 15:18. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So Paul clearly puts the focus on Jesus Christ. As he states in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We need to be teaching a profound and deep Christology in the church. For example, Christology is at the heart of suffering and how to handle adversity and the divine solutions. In 2 Corinthians 1.5, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If you don't understand Christology, you won't be able to handle adversity. He's the focal point of preaching, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves is your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Christ is the basis for understanding grace and understanding how to handle problems. In 2 Corinthians 12.9, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. The power of Christ is the power to handle the adversities. It's the basis for forgiveness in Ephesians 4.32. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. If you don't understand Christ, you can't understand forgiveness. If you don't understand Christ, you can't understand love. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. 
I don't care what you say if you don't understand Christology, the person and work of Jesus Christ, you can't understand love. And when you say, I love you, it means nothing. Ephesians 5.25, marriage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Husbands, you want to be good husbands, you study Christology and let that transform your thinking. Uh, same thing with wives. You're to be obedient to your husbands just as you are to Christ. Marriage is predicated upon an understanding of Christology, at least Christian marriage is. Same thing with employees and employers. Of course, the analogy, the issue in the New Testament is slavery, but it's easily applicable to the workplace. I know some of you feel that way. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Christology should be at the core of your understanding of your work ethic. And in terms of humility, you can't understand humility apart from Christ. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ, that though he had every right to be God, he gave up his uh, position in heaven, he willingly limited his attributes, and he took on the form of a servant. You can't understand humility if you don't understand Christology. And then finally, he is to be the focal point of our lives, Hebrews 12.2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same and the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. See, Christ is the focal point, and that is what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in our lives, and we dare not forget it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for our study of your word today, to understand the dynamics of the Holy Spirit in aiding us and helping us in the midst of presenting the gospel to a world that has rejected the truth that we know that we have an inside edge because the Holy Spirit makes it clear to them all of the issues in the gospel. Our responsibility is simply to articulate the issues. It is his responsibility to convict them and to convince them of the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray too that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that sure. It is not a matter of Feeling sorry for your sins, it's not a matter of walking an aisle, joining a church, moral reformation, or any other human factor. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All you need to do is put your faith and trust alone in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. And at that instant, the scriptures say that you are born again, you have a new spiritual life, you have eternal life, and you enter into the eternal family of God, and this can never be lost. Now, Father, we pray that the rest of us who are believers would be challenged by all of the wonderful things you have provided for us, the incredible spiritual assets we have, especially under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we may advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.